Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Judges 3, verses 12 to 30. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jared the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his boils discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah, where he arrived here, When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At the time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Father, we thank you for the book of Judges, its rawness, its realness, uh, the gory details. And we thank you that you have stuff to teach us and teach us today. We thank you that all scripture is copreathed and is useful for correcting, training, and uh, rebuking, and, and guiding us into righteousness. So, Lord, we thank you for that, and do that today, yeah, through your word. Amen. Amen. You know, that seems like a really questionable passage, but it's actually incredible. And, you know, we'll get to it soon. Has anybody ever been on a trampoline? Or does anybody have a trampoline? A couple of people. So whenever I was about 14, my sister and I, so she was about 11, I was 14, 
and we'd saved up our Christmas money, our birthday money for so long, and we eventually bought ourselves a trampoline. And so I, I wanted to be a, a, a pro in a trampoline. That was one of my dreams. I wanted to be a footballer, I wanted to be a quad racer, I wanted to be a pro in the trampoline. Only one problem is I couldn't do a backflip. I knew how to do a forward flip. Everyone knows how to do that. It's easy, it's, it's sweet. Couldn't do a backflip. That was a nightmare. You know, I had about two years of trampolining, and I still couldn't do a backflip. I knew in my head how to do one. I had the maths worked out. I had everything sorted. I knew exactly what I needed to do, but I couldn't do it. And so I, I don't know if any of you guys have ever experienced that with, with anything in life, that you've got it all worked out in your head. You know how to do it, but you just can't do it. And so for me, I just wasn't able. For me, there's a, there a fear of injury. I value my neck. I, I value my head. I, I knew what I didn't want to end up like. And so for me, there's a fear of injury. And so for the Israelites, after Joshua's death, there was a lack of vision. There's a loss of love for their rescuer. So for me, there's a fear of injury with a backflip. I simply couldn't do a backflip. And for Israel, after Joshua's death, there was a lack of vision and a loss of love for the rescuer. So to get to this stage, we, we have eight, 400 years of slavery. Israelites are, are taken captive by, uh, by the Egyptians. They're in a bad way. 400 years of slavery. Moses eventually leads them out. Moses is a man. He leads them out. This is great. It's wonderful taking them towards the promised land. And then Moses isn't faithful. Moses doesn't get to the promised land. Who takes them in? We have Joshua. So we have Joshua and Caleb that go and spy. And, and Joshua is, is given the, the charge to lead the Israelites into this promised land. And so, so the book of Joshua is insane. They, they actually take possession of the promised land. They are there. They begin taking their inheritance. And then now all of a sudden Joshua is dead. We move on. And here we are. We have judges. You know, Joshua is dead. And so whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, for the Israelites, he was the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. That's such a key verse, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord resented, or the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following all their gods and serving them and worshipping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Guys, this entire book hinges on these, these couple of verses. You know, Judges shows us both of God's faithfulness and then our unfaithfulness. And remember last week, Steve went through the, the, the cycle that we'll see in Judges in the next few weeks. There is peace in the land, then there's sin. Israel falls into idolatry. Israel swaps Yahweh for Baal, the Canaanite deity of fertility and weather for, for God. And then after that, we're under oppression. God hands, hands them over to an enemy. And instead of being a light to the nations, they're actually enslaved by the nations. And then they, they, they repent, they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers them. So there, there's peace, there's sin, there's oppression, there's repentance, and there's deliverance. And so what we're going to see now, that, and I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, if dependence is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. And so now we come to our judge, Ehud, this is such a story, unbelievable. Verse 12, again, the Israelites did, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, over to Israel. Now, Eglon was a bad man. Eglon was an evil king for 18 years. He and, and the Moabites robbed and raped and murdered the Israelites. Israel has is essentially been oppressed by this nation, this foreign land, and this evil king. And so that's the context, 18 years of oppression. 
And so for some of us, the, the worst we've, we've seen is the demise of the Celtic Tiger or maybe a few years of, of austerity. Maybe some of us have had oppression like that. But you know, 18 years of, of this oppression is absolutely insane. Because the, the judge beforehand was a guy called Othniel and, and, and Israel prospered under him. And then once he died, Israel went back to their, their old ways, back to their, their foreign gods. And now they've found themselves in 18 years of oppression. And so for Israelites, they were under foreign rule. They were absolutely taxed to the hilt by an evil ruler and living in persistent poverty. So what do they do? Part of the cycle, they cry out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Do you see that? The Lord raised up for them a deliverer. So no matter how ropey this passage looks, remember this, that the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. A left-handed man. That's hilarious. You'll find nowhere else in the Bible where it talks about a man who's left-handed. Anybody here left-handed? Couple, one, two, four, three, four, five, six, me. Oh, left hand. Unbelievable, there's a place for everyone. Literally, it says a man who could not use his right hand. That's, a, that's the actual, uh, that's, that's what it says, a man who couldn't use his right hand. And so in NIV, it says a left-handed person. And you know, it might well have been the case that, that uh, he was born with this way. Maybe he was born with an impairment. Um, maybe he was just simply left-handed, but it seems, it seems to the, the scholars that he was born with, with a disability and impairment. He simply couldn't use his right hand. Maybe he was born with a bad right hand. Who knows? But whatever the reason, whatever the reason for this, the writer makes it seem really clear that this is so intentionally placed in this story for a reason. And so I'm left-handed, and the very worst that I have to endure is smudged ink when I'm writing. Or maybe the inability to cut very well with scissors. Has anybody actually got left-handed scissors? Nobody. You see, one person, unbelievable. I need a pair of them in my life. In those days, being left-handed wasn't considered inconvenient, but it was actually considered an impairment, a severe impairment. And so the, to the readers of Judges, the greatest surprise in this narrative is that God would actually raise up a left-handed deliverer. You know, whenever, whenever the book of Judges was read out originally, the Israelites would have loved it because they see, yeah, they're sinful and God rescues them, but, but they love it because what essentially it is, is this is a victory over, over the Moabite king. And so the Israelites would have gathered around and this would have been read and they would have laughed at the fact that God would raise up a left-handed deliverer, laugh at the fact that God would have raised up somebody so unlikely. And you know, the, the Bible has so many references to the right hand. Um, the right hand was mentioned in, in Steve's psalm that I read, Psalm 121. And there's also more. God swears by his right hand. I swear by my right hand. His chosen one, his chosen one sits at his right hand. And so since most people was, were, were right-handed, the right hand is a symbol of power and the right hand is a symbol of ability. You fought with your right hand. Your sword was in your right hand. Your ability lies in your right hand. So anyway, Ehud volunteered to deliver a tax payment uh, to the evil King Eglon. So he loaded up his wagon. Consider this. He loaded up the wagon with the tax payment. I don't know what was in it, but it was worth a lot of money. And he packed a little surprise under his thigh. Do you see that? Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about, about a cubit long, roughly 18 inches. Man, I don't even know if my thigh is 18 inches long, so I don't need a smaller one. But anyway, the, roughly a cubit, uh, uh, 18 inches. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing. It's so significant. His right thigh is so significant. He presented a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who's a very fat man. That's hilarious. Wow. You will find nowhere else in the Bible that it says that. But interestingly, the, the original writing used two identical words. 
It wasn't very fat, but it was actually fat, fat. He was a fat, fat man. <laughs> Suddenly, we get to see in the slow motion. We zoom in. Every, every detail is absolutely highlighted, including every possible graphic detail. And so we kind of we, we breeze through the whole passage until this point, until this very point where, where Eglon is considered a, a very fat man. And, and Ehud presents a tribute. And afterwards, he says, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. And the king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. And to be honest, um, if, you're, if you're an Israelite and you're coming to the Moab king, uh, to Eglon, there's no way the king is going to say to the attendants to leave us. Obviously, he needs his security there. He needs his guards. This foreigner is coming to present this tribute. But remember, he's a left-handed foreigner. He's, a, he's an impaired foreigner. He's disabled. He's fit for nothing. He had no right arm of strength. And Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room in his palace, verse 20, and he said, I have a message from God for you. And as the, as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew his sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Unbelievable. Who would have seen this coming? Eglon literally did not see this coming, and he wouldn't have seen Ehud as a threat. There's no way this man could have been a threat. And that's why he left himself alone in this room with Ehud without a guard. You know, the guard wouldn't have even had a chance or wouldn't have even thought about, about this left-handed man. And maybe if he did, the, the guard would have come up to him and, and said, right, okay, uh, spread yourself. And the guard would have done a, done a, a check, full body search, apart from, obviously apart from the leg, because if he's going to be right-handed, then the only place he'd need a check is the left thigh. The, you'd draw the dagger out of the left thigh, you would have killed him. So chances are the guards would have checked over Ehud, but he would not have looked to his right thigh because a weapon is never going to be in the right thigh unless you're left-handed. Unbelievable. The guard wouldn't have had a clue. Even the handle sank in after the blade, verse 22, and his boils discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Guys, the NIV has been really polite. And this is one time I don't like that version. NABV has been so polite because what it's really saying is that the dung came out. That's an absolute fact. Belly closed over and the dung came out. That is what happened. And even better, verse 23, Ehud went to the porch and he shut the doors of the upper room behind him and they locked him. In other words, he kind of escaped out the balcony. He's killed him. He's in the palace. What does he do? He needs to get his, he needs to get his escape plan going. In other words, he escaped out the balcony. Verse 24, after he had gone, the servants came Servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the upper room of the palace because that's what it smelled like. That is what it smelled like based on what the previous verse said. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. Could you imagine the guards, they're waiting. It might be an hour has passed. Maybe he's constipated. Maybe it's only 20 minutes have passed. But all we know, all we know is, is that Ehud has escaped. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when they did not... But when, they, when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and they unlocked him. They saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. Well, by now, Ehud is safely away from the palace. And he rallies Israel and they rise up against Moab. Verse 28, follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites all vigorous and strong, and not one escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. All right, so what are we supposed to learn from this? What do we take from this? God uses left-handed people, yeah. 
Believe it or not, I, I'm convinced there are two keys to spiritual victory that are embedded within this colorful and yet disturbing, disturbing story. One, God saves through weakness. God saves through weakness. Ehud is a picture of an un unlikely savior, isn't he? It's a picture of an unlikely savior, a left-handed man. Chances are when he, when he grew up, there's no way he could have been the guard. There's no way he could have been a, a, a strong, mighty warrior like we'll hear of Gideon. Chances are Ehud is this guy that from, probably from day one, from his childhood, he was always going to be the loser. He was always going to be the one that lost out. He was never going to be the chosen one. Ehud is a picture of an unlikely savior, the warrior who lacks the one thing that any deliverer needs, a strong right hand of power. Ehud's story is part of an important trajectory that the author of Judges is laying out, and he's actually setting up the coming of Jesus a thousand years later. And I want to tell you this, we should consider Jesus maybe as being one of the most left-handed people of all. Remember, Jesus was born poor to immigrants. Jesus had no armies or earthly power. In other words, Jesus didn't come with the right arm of strength. Isaiah 53 tells us there's nothing in Jesus' appearance or there's nothing in, in the appearance of this one to come that would have attracted us to them. He was despised and rejected by men. And Paul says he took the form of a servant. Yet for this despised and an overlooked servant, God is going to bring about Satan's demise. So in other words, Jesus didn't come with the right arm of strength. Physically, he wasn't intimidating. Jesus didn't come with the right arm of strength. This trajectory teaches us, first and foremost, that salvation, the salvation that God is going to bring about, is in Jesus, first of all. But then the story also shows us something that's so key. Power isn't found in the right hand of strength, but in Jesus, and that's accessed by the left hand of faith. Guys, remember this today. Power is not found in the right hand of strength, but in Jesus, and that is accessed in the left hand of faith. Listen to these words that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Where do we get the power to live the Christian life? Where do we get this? By leaning into God's power, leaning into the left hand of faith. Here's a phrase I keep coming back to. If dependence is the objective, then weakness becomes an advantage. If dependence is the objective, dependence upon the Father, then weakness, our weakness, becomes an advantage. Which leads me to this. In God's kingdom, availability is much more important than ability. In God's kingdom, availability is more important ability. Because God supplies our strength and because God supplies our weaknesses, availability is more important than ability to those who want to be used by God. Do you want to be used by God? And that's great. And you know what? It doesn't really matter about your, your, your ability, but it's more your, your availability. God can achieve more in a few minutes through somebody empowered by the Holy Spirit than armies and kings can in a lifetime. Remember John 6, the Hebrew Happy Meal? Feeding them the 5,000. It's insane, it's incredible. What a story I learned as a kid and I'm still learning it today. And Jesus says to Philip, uh, what, what should we do? Where, where are we going to go and get food for these people even though Jesus already knew? 
And Philip, he ended up saying about getting 200, 200 denarii. Essentially, it's like eight months of Matthew's wages. We need eight months of your wages. Then we'll go out and buy, buy some, some food. We'll buy some bread, maybe spaghetti hoops. We'll get whatever is needed, but we need eight months' wages. And even then, it mightn't even feed everybody because the reality is 5,000 men is probably, possibly close to 15,000 people because whenever they counted people, they only counted the men. I'm sorry, that, that's the way it was. I don't like it, but that's the way it was. Instead, Jesus took a Hebrew happy meal. He took five loaves and he took two fish. And what, what Jesus demonstrated was that he could accomplish more through one act of obedience than could be accomplished in a, in a lifetime without God's blessing. You know, all it took was a young fellow to come up and, and give what he had, to open up his hands and say, here's what I have, take this. Here I am, use me. And so even, though, even so, God continues to advance his kingdom today, not through the right arm of our strength, but through the left hand of our willingness. Through the left hand of our willingness. In the hands of Jesus, a little can become a lot. Amen. Amen. In the hands of Jesus, a little can become a lot. You know, we may not have very much to offer him, but that's exactly what he wants. That's exactly what he wants, our, our little amount. Maybe you feel incompetent. Maybe you feel incapable. And that's pretty good because you're exactly where God wants you to be. You'll be used by God not when you're able, but when you're available. I want that to wash over you. You'll be used by God not when you're able, but when you're available. And so the question is today, have you yielded yourself to him? Maybe, maybe you feel like you're not ready. And so maybe God is actually encouraging you to go, to step out, to actually do something. You know, many of us, including me, especially me, is paralyzed by the fear of what if. Don't know if anybody else feels that, paralyzed by the fear of what if. But then what if we were to experience the freedom of the opportunity of the what if? Knowing that a little is much in the hand of God, knowing that the what if should actually bring about a freedom rather than a fear. You know, what we're about to see from this point onwards in the story and in the book of Judges is that God can do extraordinary things through ordinary people who make themselves available. And as we see through the rest of the book of Judges, God is raising up imperfect and flawed, really flawed uh, deliverers, deliverer after deliverer, who actually don't use the left hand of, of weakness as an excuse. But the reality is that there's a tragedy in this story. There we go. Remember Steve's illustration last week, Calvary? Has anybody seen it in the past week? No, probably for the best. It's such a dark film. You know, I went to the cinema to see it with a couple of lads one night. Just wanted to chill out one Friday night, go to the cinema, enjoy ourselves. And instead, we, we sat through something that was so depressing, so horrible. And then the screen went black at the end and the credits didn't start. And we just sat there, probably white-faced, thinking, flip's sake, what did this last hour and a half achieved? But you know, there's a tragedy. There's a tragedy at the end of that story as well. But the tragedy here is that, that even though Ehud killed fat, fat King Eglon, even though Ehud escaped, even though Israel routed the Moabite army, even though God gave Israel freedom for 80 more years, in the long run, and this is key, Judges 4, verse 1, it says this, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. You know, it's, this may be something for us to look out for. It's interesting that whenever the deliverer, whenever, whenever Joshua died, Israel went astray. Whenever the, the deliverer, whenever Ehud died, Israel goes astray. It seems that whenever there is no leader, people cast off restraint. You know, one of the Proverbs says that where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. 
This is such a perfect example. The sad fact of the matter is this, that Ehud was not a totally adequate savior. Even though God brings a certain kind of salvation uh, to his people through Ehud, nothing Ehud could do could change the hearts of Israel. Do you hear that? Nothing Ehud could do could actually change the hearts of Israel. Ehud might have exerted some sort of influence while he was around, and he brought about a physical freedom, but he could not release Israel from the spiritual bondage of sin or rip the idols from their hearts. You know, God raises up a deliverer and Ehud who physically rescued them, but it wasn't until God sent a savior in Christ who would break the chains of bondage, the curse of sin and the curse of death. Jesus is the ultimate savior. You know, at City Group last Wednesday, Corey said, you know, everyone likes to give Israel a bad rap, but we're just like them. You know, it's, it's funny, whenever you hear the, the Bible stories, you hear of David and Daniel and all these guys, and maybe as a kid you learn, be like David or be like Daniel. You know, quite often we put ourselves as the savior in the story, but really, if I was to put myself in the story of the judges, as much as I'd love to be Ehud, the left-handed guy, I'd fit it so well. The reality is, I'm just like Israel. I'm, I'm, I'm just the, the one that, that goes astray. But thankfully, Jesus has come, the ultimate savior, not just to rescue us physically, but to rescue us from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death. You know, guys, our real bondage does not consist of fat kings and moabs or physical oppression, and no left-handed savior can break you free. But there's one with nail-pierced hands who bore the punishment that we deserved, who's broken the power of sin forever, giving us freedom, giving us an access to God, giving us an ability to love God, but also allows us to understand that God loves us as his children. Can I just invite the worship team back up as I close? You know, if you don't know Jesus today, and I want to tell you this, that, that Jesus is the ultimate savior. Jesus is the only one that can rescue you from, from the bondage of sin. Jesus is the only one that can rescue you from death. You know, no matter what, what society says, no matter what the world throws at us, nothing can save us. In the same way Ehud was a deliverer that, that God raised up at the right time, so Jesus is the ultimate savior that God raised up at the perfect time. You know, we don't turn and put our faith in a, a left-handed savior in Ehud, but we turn and put our faith in a, in a nail-pierced hands of Jesus, the only one that can save us. Will, will you stand with me as I pray? I want to encourage you, there'll be a prayer team here at the, at the front at the end. If you want to come up for prayer, if you want to surrender your life to Jesus, and there'll be a few of us here, we would love to engage with you. Uh, Jesus, thank you, thank you for the story of Ehud. Um, thank you that you raised up uh, a left-handed savior, an unlikely. And thank you, Jesus, that you still want to use the unlikelies today. I thank you, Jesus, that nobody is too far gone to be used by you. And I thank you, Jesus, that no disability or no impairment or nothing can hinder you from doing what only you can do. I thank you, Jesus, for your, your, your rescue. I thank you for what you have brought about through your death and resurrection and your ascension. And so will you equip your, your, your spirit-filled people today to be your hands and your feet in Dublin? And so as, as we sing and as we close, Jesus, we want to just surrender back to you and say that this day is yours as is every day. And that tomorrow morning, this day is yours as is every day. So will you do something in and through us, Jesus, this week that if, if we'd have heard about last week, we wouldn't have even believed it. We're dependent upon you, Jesus. Dependence is the high ground. We cling to you, Father. Amen.